lovers, welcome to Get Real, a podcast hosted by the National Animal Interest Alliance through which we'll have deeply honest conversations about animal research so we can learn together and make compassionate choices about our medical future together. Welcome to episode 30 of Get Real. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real, and our guest today is going to tell us why compassion fatigue should be dropped from our vocabulary. The truth is that this term and some of the others we use to describe the emotional struggles we feel in this work, will they just make things worse? Now, I know that's confusing, but my very good friend and colleague Lisa Kelly returns today to spell it out for us on Get Real. My dear friend, Lisa Kelly. Welcome back to Get Real. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you talk a little bit more about this topic. Our listeners may remember, and if not, I encourage them to go back and review the episode we did together, the first one, called Two Truths. In that episode, you introduced us to the concept of our unique struggle in lab animal science and research as it relates to the stress we experience specifically that's related to the euthanasia of our research animals. This is a topic that's really important to you. It's been important to you, obviously, for a long time. When we spoke for the last episode, it was the focus of your master's work, right? And of course, now that's come and gone. You already have your master's degree, but you're continuing on with this focus in the course of completing your PhD. So actually, you're almost Dr. Lisa Kelly. So in that episode, you discussed the fact that one of the things that makes our experience so unique in lab animal research when it comes to euthanizing animals is that, and I'm going to quote you now, we have to be able to hold two truths. We need to be able to understand that we can be someone who loves and values animals and is a compassionate, loving human being, and also someone who has to euthanize animals. That is a little bit hard for folks to understand, and you think it's really important for us to understand that. And why is it so important for those of us who work with research animals and have to euthanize them routinely as a part of our work to understand and accept that we can hold these two truths? I think it is absolutely critical for our industry. I think it's critical for the well-being of individuals in our industry. And, and I think it's critical for research and for the world. Because I think this dichotomy, this idea that, you know, you have to be one or the other. You have to be someone who loves animals, who has compassion toward animals, or you have to be someone who euthanizes animals. I think this is a polarity that society has created. And yet, like a lot of other dichotomies, it just isn't true. People are a lot more complicated than that. The difficult decisions that we have to make, they're a lot more complicated than that. We love animals, and I think we are in this industry inherently caring, loving people. And research has shown that. We know that individuals who choose laboratory animal science is certainly a helper profession. Those tend to be highly compassionate people. Even research within our own field of laboratory animal science has shown us that by and large, most people say the reason they were drawn to this field was because they loved animals. 
Yet this really important, incredible work we do requires us to actually end the lives of the very animals that we love so much. Obviously, we have to do this because we know that many of the answers we're searching for in research we find in the tissues. Sometimes maybe our animals are ill at the end of a study or have been a part of a study. And as a result, for welfare reasons, we don't want them to participate in another study. At some point, many, many times in research, we have to end the life of these animals. And that is never an easy thing to do. Never. But biomedical research saves lives. It doesn't just save human lives. It saves animal lives. It saves our planet's. And it's very challenging work that requires the sacrifice of animals. It requires the sacrifice of us. So I think it's important for us to understand, to be able to successfully navigate those challenges in a way that keeps us mentally healthy. So it's a very important topic and one that I have devoted a lot of time and energy toward investigating and also one that I know is important to you, Cindy, and to a lot of other people in our industry. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree. The, the emotional struggle, I mean, it, it is very real. I mean, it is really difficult to love animals as much as we do, and then to have to do some of the things we have to do in order to continue to do good for the rest of the animals and people of the world, just like you said. But this has always been super important to you. I mean, it's so important to you that you've committed what feels like will be the rest of your career to this. Why is it so important to you? What made this so important to you? I started off my career working in small biopharma, and I'd always known kind of the value of the work, but I began to really see firsthand the toll that it took on the people that did it, the toll it took on me. You know, the times that it was incredibly difficult to reconcile the way I felt about myself with what I knew I was doing, which was incredibly value. So my logical part of my brain understood that what I was doing had value and meaning in the world. And I understood all the problems we were solving and all the people we were saving. All that made great sense to me, but it didn't keep me from feeling terrible. It didn't prevent me from carrying that burden. And I began to see its impact on people around. I began to see people that I valued very, very much and people that I thought were amazing professionals leave the field because they felt so burdened. And I knew we had lost people people who very much loved animals to this industry burden. And so that really began to pique my interest and make me think about why are we carrying such a heavy burden and what can we do about it? And I think that's where my research interest began. So a lot of folks are trying to talk about this now. It used to be something no one ever talked about, right? We didn't talk about research and we certainly didn't talk about euthanasia. I can remember actually people in our field saying, no, no, don't talk about euthanasia. And I remember saying, well, are you crazy? This is a part of our work and not talking about it brings a lot of shame. I mean, there's that whole piece too. If we're invisible all the time, we're made to feel like, well, whatever we do doesn't matter or we shouldn't talk about it because it's awful. And so then that adds to the burden you were talking to, right? But when people are talking about this now, they keep referring to it over and over again as compassion fatigue. And what's unique about your perspective is you flat out disagree with this characterization. And the thing that I am really interested in, and I think our listeners will be interested in, is it's not just a matter of semantics to you, because as you say, words matter. Walk us through how all of this thinking about the struggle evolved for you over the past couple of years and why you feel this way, that compassion fatigue is just the wrong term. Absolutely. So, as I began my PhD work, 
I was trying to figure out, you know, where can I make an impact? How can my work really focus on the people that mean so much to me and the burden that they're bearing? Really thinking about these amazing heroic individuals and what can I do in my research to find more support for them? Empirical research over the last 10 to 15 years has absolutely substantiated that this is a real phenomenon. It is real. It happens and it happens frequently. Across numerous studies, we see anywhere from 50 to 85 percent of laboratory animal science professionals admit to having dealt with this phenomena at some point in their career. Up to 85 percent of us. And empirical research has done a pretty good job at identifying some of the symptoms and the impact those symptoms have on individuals, on organizations, and even on our broader research community. So we know that it's real and we know what it looks like but we don't really understand it. Not only do we not understand it, the public doesn't understand it. And that causes all sorts of problems when we start thinking about it as a stigmatized occupation. And there's research going way back into the 1950s on stigmatized work and how stigmatized work can impact things like social identity and self-esteem. So we know that when individuals are working in stigmatized occupations, there are certain challenges. And it definitely may me think that our occupation is one of those. So I wanted to humanize the research to really bring it back to the people. And I started thinking about how can I do that? And so I decided to do my PhD research using phenomenology and hermeneutic focus. In phenomenological research, which is a type of qualitative research, you are really focusing on the phenomena itself. You're looking at the interaction between the individual and their world or the individual and society and kind of the space in between where the phenomena is occurring. And then I wanted to look at it hermeneutically. Hermeneutics goes way back to the study of biblical text when individuals would study certain passages and then whole chapters and this kind of in and out movement to gain a bigger view till something emerged through both looking at something in the minute and then looking at it overall. And hermeneutics really is around language and where languages overlap and where people's description of things overlap. So language is really key to studying how we make meaning about a phenomena. We make meaning through language as people. We come to joint meanings and to joint understandings through our languaging with each other. So language is very, very important to these types of studies because they really are about the expression of the phenomena and how it's presenting itself to the world. So I was very intentional. I've got to find the right name. I've got to make sure whatever I'm calling it, I'm using the right term. And I've never been fond of compassion fatigue because my own experience told me my compassion never fatigued. I never felt like my compassion was gone. I always cared for these animals. I always felt compassion for their suffering. So just didn't make sense to me. So I'd never used it. In some past work I'd done, I had used the term PITS or perpetration-induced traumatic stress. But again, that one didn't leave me feeling great either. So I was pretty unhappy with both of those terms. I also tried to look at some other terms, some outlier terms uh, like cost of caring. That didn't really feel like a phenomenon name, felt more like a description. Vicarious trauma. Is it really vicarious? Not really. I'm the one doing the euthanasia. Nothing vicarious about that. So those other outlier terms didn't really fit either. I mean, I really poured through the literature trying to find that right term and just couldn't come up with it. So I was like, I'll dig into the history, see if I can get a little more information. 
information there. And I was shocked, absolutely shocked by what I found. So when we look at something like compassion fatigue, compassion fatigue was actually a term that came out of a article that was not a empirical research article. It was more of an opinion type article by a nurse named Carla Joinson. In the 1990s, she wrote an article for the journal Nursing in which she described a condition of hospice nurses where they become callous toward their patients because they've seen so much suffering and death. And she believed they were suffering from compassion fatigue. And it was just a term she used in her article. This term was picked up just a couple of years later by a very prominent researcher by the name of Charles Figley. Now, Charles Figley had made a name for himself because he was one of the individuals, maybe the individual, that coined the term PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. And he had done years and years of research on PTSD. So he was a well-known, well-established PTSD researcher. So he borrowed this term from her article and wrote a book and he called it Compassion Fatigue. That was literally the name of his book. And in the book, he described a condition of trauma therapist who became desensitized to the stories of trauma of their clients because they had heard so many repeated stories of trauma. And that was the term he used for them. A few years later, he picks up the term again in his next book. And in his next book, he writes it in his Compassion Fatigue for the Animal Care Community. And he's writing it with a co-author by the name of Robert Roop. So I'm like, well, who is Robert Roop? Is he also a trauma researcher? Because I don't really know. So I start doing a little investigate. Who's Robert Roop? What are his credentials? And I find out that Robert Roop is actually one of the top executives in the Humane Society of the United States. And I'm like, whoa, because to be honest, as someone who's worked in animal research for many years, I know HSUS has a reputation as a animal rights law lobbyist organization. Yeah, the largest in the country. Absolutely. And then also HSU has provided some funding for this book, though it's primarily focused on a phenomena being experienced by individuals in shelter medicine, individuals that are having to euthanize animals as part of their job working in animal shelters and the psychological impact that that is having on them, which may or may not be similar to our own. So he is using this same term with them. And that's the first time we really see it connected with animals. And then he also does something a very short while later. Dr. Figley confers with Stom and Perlman to develop a tool that becomes really, really popular. And this tool is called the ProQOL, the Professional Quality of Life Scale. And it's a tool that's used to measure occupational stress. But when you look at the breakdown of what it measures, it measures compassion fatigue, compassion satisfaction, and burnout, and then uses an algorithm to tell you whether you're experiencing occupational stress. But the sheer popularity of that tool popularizes the term compassion fatigue. So we have compassion fatigue there, we have it in this book, and then we begin to see it beginning to emerge with the writings of individual researchers that are looking at this phenomena in animal-based research. So at that point, I'm like, okay, so it kind of just came to us from other places no, right? It, di it didn't really originate with us. It came through a long and varied history. So my question was, are we the same? Am I a trauma therapist? Am I a hospice nurse? Even a shelter worker? And the fact is, when we think about it again as a stigmatized occupation, 
None of those are stigmatized occupations. Maybe a little bit in shelter medicine, but still we know just from the sheer popularity of HSUS, there's tons of support for animal shelters. Most people love therapists. Most people love our nurses. They love our healthcare professionals. They have lots of public support. So is this the same phenomena in our stigmatized occupation, which has its own struggles around self-esteem, social inclusion? What's happening there? So it just left me thinking, I don't know that it's the same phenomena. And then when we just go back to the words, so I went back to the words, compassion fatigue, does our compassion fatigue? And I ran into a really interesting article by Dowling and Dowling says, compassion doesn't fatigue. It can't. It's neurologically rejuvenating. And I was like, what does she mean? And she goes on in her article to explain that compassion actually triggers reward signals in the brain. It's the same chemical brain response we get for bonding and attachment. Our brain doesn't get tired of being rewarded. Therefore, compassion doesn't fatigue. So I went a step further and said, tell me exactly what compassion is. Am I sure that we have compassion? And there's been a lot of very good studies. Strauss did one in particular on what is compassion. Looking at some of the ways of differentiating compassion from other similar emotions like empathy, most researchers that have studied compassion say what really differentiates it is not only do you have this feeling of empathizing or joint suffering with another, you're also spurred to action. You want to take actions to relieve that suffering. So then I went back to what have our researchers shown? And I found article after article where they've shown that laboratory animal science professionals are at the forefront of individuals advocating for animals. They're taking action. They're trying to improve the welfare of the animals in their care. They care passionately about the quality of life for these animals. And because of that, Compassion's exactly the right term. That's exactly what we feel. So compassion's the right term. Fatigue, not so much. When we spoke last time, and this was early on in your evolution of, yeah, compassion fatigue's probably not the right term. Maybe Pitts is closer, perpetrator-induced traumatic stress. You were thinking that was closer back then, but not any longer. Explain that. I did think it captured something that wasn't captured in compassion fatigue, this feeling of shame, this idea of feeling some personal culpability that isn't captured in compassion fatigue. So I appreciated that about it. But once I had done this deep dive into compassion fatigue and its history, I felt like it was equally important for me to do kind of a deep dive into the history of Pitts and see if that might be a better term. What I found was equally surprising. Pitts is a term introduced by a researcher named Rachel McNair, and she was also a trauma researcher. She was studying veterans, and she was particularly interested in PTSD, which kind of connects her with Figley. He actually said that he believed the compassion fatigue felt in the animal community was PTSD. He makes that claim in his second book. So she's picking up this idea of PTSD, but she's specifically talking about soldiers. And she uses data from a survey from Vietnam veterans. And she's looking at the symptoms the veterans are indicating they have in comparison to the actions they took during their time of service. And she finds that individuals who killed in the line of duty have more insidious symptoms of PTSD than those who didn't. 
And then she even has a subgroup of those who killed innocent people, non-intended casualties, that those people have particularly insidious symptoms of PTSD. So the act of killing and particularly the act of killing innocent individuals results in a more insidious type of PTSD. And this is what she names as PITS or perpetration-induced traumatic stress. But my question returns to me again, do I think what I've experienced is like a soldier? Our soldiers are not a stigmatized occupation and killing in the line of duty is different than animal euthanasia. So it just didn't feel like that was the same thing either. On her website, Dr. McNair is very upfront about her views as a pacifist, her views that killing anything for any reason is wrong. So I know she also has some thoughts and some meanings that she's bringing into this particular terminology. And she does eventually connect it with animals, but that's really only been this year. We see her article coming out in 2023 where she says that she believes individuals in the meatpacking industry are also experiencing pits. Again, I'm not sure that's exactly our industry, but that's the first time she really connects it. However, for quite a few years, others who have done research in shelter medicine, research in animal-based research, have borrowed this term from her. So they were borrowing it probably before she really connected it in her own research. And then I went back, just like I did for compassion fatigue, and started looking at the actual word choice in itself. And there's the word perpetration front and center. And so I'm like, okay, Okay, what is the real definition of what it means to be a perpetrator? What does it mean to perpetrate? It's an act of committing a crime, a violent or harmful act. I have euthanized a lot of animals. I don't feel like I've ever done so as a criminal, and I have certainly never done so with an intention toward harm. So that word just does not fit. And I think it also adds to that social stigma that is part of our struggle. So that name just didn't work for me. Well, right. I mean, the very definition of euthanasia is a good death. And the regulations, in fact, require that we eliminate as much stress. And I mean, so it is deliberately a very peaceful process. So, I mean, I agree with you. And that makes perfect sense. So what are we going to call it? Almost, Dr. Lisa Kelly. At that point, I'm like, okay, I don't know what name I'm going to call it. And then it hit me. Both of these researchers claim it is a type of PTSD. So that was the next avenue I went down. And I pulled up the DSM-5, which is our most current diagnostic manual on what is defined as PTSD. And there's five or six criteria associated. I think we meet most, if not all, of those definitions. Have you experienced or been part of the suffering of an other? Well, if you would define that as an animal, I think that's a yes. But PTSD itself is very contested. Even among trauma researchers, even in the human medical community, PTSD itself is definitely not nailed down. There was a researcher who said they believed it should not be a diagnosable condition, but should instead be an overarching condition that different distinct types of trauma are placed under. There's been a lot of debate that it doesn't take into account that almost all of the research on PTSD has focused on kind of wartime trauma in the moment. And this really blew my mind. The APA in the DSM-5 has a fairly different definition of PTSD than WHO does, the World Health Organization. So we can't even really agree on a definition. Maybe it's PTSD. Maybe it's not. 
my next question to myself was, is it trauma? If it's not PTSD, could we at least maybe back off, broaden that a little and say, is it a type of trauma? So I went to the American Psychological Association's definition of trauma, and they define trauma as any disturbing experience that results in significant fear, helplessness, dissociation, or other disruptive feelings intense enough to have long-lasting negative effects on a person's attitudes, behaviors, or other aspects of functioning. So then returning to empirical research within our own industry, what I found is repeatedly instances where people were experiencing things like relationship damage or sleeplessness, somatic issues or depression or other things that absolutely impacted their functioning and were caused by feelings like fear or helplessness or shame or a disruptive feeling. So in my opinion, in many instances, it is trauma. It is traumatic. So I think that defining it as such is critically important because I would rather say something might be trauma than exclude it when it could be trauma because it's so very important that we take serious steps to mitigate trauma because we know that unresolved trauma has all sorts of negative long-term mental health implications for individuals. So if it could be trauma, even if it's only a portion of individuals, we need to think of it as potentially traumatizing. So then I started thinking about, well, what kind of trauma is it? And I went back to compassion because remember I had shown we're compassionate. That one had proved true, just not the fatigue part. So I thought, well, yes, it's trauma caused by the very thing we are. We're loving, compassionate people and this causes our trauma. But what is happening in that? Like, what is the actual mechanism of that trauma? So I went back again to the American Psychological Association searching for some definitions around what this experience might be. And I hit on a term I thought that captured it very well. And this is the idea of dissonance. And the American Psychological Association defines dissonance as an unpleasant psychological state resulting from an inconsistency between two or more elements in a cognitive system. And that goes back to those two truths that we talked about last time, right? The truth that I love animals, I am compassionate toward animals, and yet my job, I know that it's important that I euthanize animals because that's how we find answers to these very important questions that are important for humans, animals, and our entire world. So these two things are clashing, right? They're hitting against each other. Dissonance actually is a musical term for a disharmony of notes, a clashing of unpleasant sounds. And that's exactly what's happening in our brains. Our brains are clashing right against these two truths. I love animals. I must euthanize animals. And that's exactly it. This unhealthy clashing of two things that are both true. So in my opinion, it is traumatic compassion dissonance. Traumatic compassion dissonance. Yeah, I mean, I think the most important word in there is the dissonance. That's the struggle. The public doesn't understand this. And maybe even some of the folks who oversee our caregivers don't understand it because they're not the ones actually doing it, right? But it's that dissonance piece. No one's thinking about that. And so the public just views us as horrible people because <laughs> they're not seeing the dissonance because they don't see us as compassionate because we're killing animals. They can't hold two truths. They don't know how to do that. And to hold two truths, you really have to embrace 
dissonance. And it's the dissonance that's causing all of this misunderstanding and probably has a greater impact on the shame we're feeling. I think it makes it challenging also for our institutions and supervisors to support us because how do you support dissonance? I'm not really sure. And I mean, that brings me to my next question. Okay. So people listening to this are probably saying, well, you know, whatever you call it, I know what I'm feeling, you know, and uh, I know you say it's not semantics, but why does it matter that we label this thing properly? Why does it matter that we call it what it actually is? What difference does it make? I think it matters on two fronts. I think the first thing is it matters because it impacts how society views us. You know, if I say my compassion fatigues, then that plays into that narrative that we're uncaring, uncompassionate people. And it plays into a false narrative about us. Perpetration-induced traumatic stress certainly plays into a false narrative about us. And that only causes further stigma. And we know from years of stigma research that has negative implications for anyone working in our industry. So I think there's that whole forward-facing piece of using bad terminology misrepresents us to the broader public. And we already have an image problem. And we don't need to exacerbate that with bad language. But I also think it impacts how we see ourselves, which is incredibly important. I did a webinar a while back where I actually had some individuals, and and I did this purposely to be a bit provocative. I asked them how it felt to be in an occupation where you had to kill animals for a living. And boy, was the response visceral and swift. I mean, the chat blew up. People were so angry about that question, felt so misunderstood because of that question. I don't kill animals, I euthanize animals. And that may seem very similar to some people, the end result being the same. But they saw this as a difference, not just in what they did, but in who they were. It helped define their self-concept. So the words we use don't just influence what the public thinks about us. They influence us on what we think about ourselves, on how we view our own relationships with our jobs, how we view our own relationships with these animals in our care. So having bad language perpetuates, in my opinion, this phenomena. So I think getting good language is important. And I'm certainly not saying traumatic compassion dissonance is the only term. Someone out there may come up with a better one. It was just the best one I could name. And I don't feel like we had a term that worked. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How do we support our people? If we are envisioning an experience that isn't actually their experience, then that would compromise our ability to support them in all of this. I mean, what are the next steps now for us to support the folks in our community who go through this on a regular basis, you know, more effectively? I mean, I don't think we do a good job of this. I mean, I know we don't. I agree. One of the things that we have to really consider is making sure that we're continuing to legitimize the phenomena, right? Like you had said earlier, there's so many times in so many industries that it's pushed down. Like, yeah, I know this may be uncomfortable, but we have to get rid of those. We have to legitimize the fact that this is a real phenomena. It has a significant impact on individuals. So I think that's a first step. I think the second step that's so important is humanizing it have mad respect for lots of the empirical research that's been done because it did substantiate this phenomena. It did tell us what the symptoms are and how to recognize it. But I think all of those statistics and numbers and data, they don't make this human. To us, they don't make this human to the world. They don't make it a real 
story in the way that a narrative does or in the way that a conversation does, in the way that things like this podcast do, like humanizing the experience of what it's like to be a real person in this industry. So I think we need to move our research or at least expand our research into areas that are more humanizing and research methodologies that are more humanizing, that bring narratives and stories forward, that help explain the real lived experience of individuals in our industry. Because then we can begin to really have a broader, deeper, richer, more nuanced understanding of this phenomena so that we can develop more effective ways of addressing it. I think we need to move away from the idea that this is an issue we fix or we correct or we make go away. Like you were saying, Cindy, the dissonance is the piece. You're holding two truths and those don't go away, nor would we want them to. We don't want someone to give up their compassion to make this better. We don't want someone to give up their job so they don't have to deal with this. So we must be able to hold both of these things in the same space at the same time. So I think we need to move our ideas more to management and navigation and how do we support individuals that are living in this environment that requires this sort of occupational burden. This is the burden of this work. And it's a burden I think many of us gladly pay for the sacrifice these animals are making and for the amazing discoveries that come out of those sacrifices. Yeah, it will change the way institutions themselves view their own employees, I think. I think that the intersection of your brilliance and genuine love for people and animals is on full display here. And uh, I'm just so incredibly proud of you. And I, and I love you so much. And I think this work is very valuable. I'm super glad that you joined us today to introduce it to the community and give everybody some time to, you know, mull it over, um, not just in their brains, but in their hearts. And I mean, everybody, the folks on the, on the front lines that are doing most of the euthanasia and their supervisors and people who are ultimately in charge of caring for these people, in addition to the animals that the people are caring for, right? I mean, uh, this is a huge, huge thing. It isn't semantics. This whole thing is about loving our community before I let you go, I just wondered if you had anything else you wanted to share with our listeners. I think I just have such incredible respect for people like you, Cindy, for people who are trying to move the pendulum forward, who are trying to get the support for all of our animal research heroes. I think we need to remember to hold each other up as we're navigating through our new knowledge and our new understanding about this phenomenon, because I don't think this is something we fix, nor do I think our understanding of how best to manage it is going to be an overnight thing. It's going to be something that takes a lot of commitment from a lot of people in a lot of areas. And I think it's so important that we recognize that and that we hold each other in a safe space until we can do that. I know that empirical research has shown that age or, or perhaps tenure and peer support are the most important factors in mitigating this phenomena. So I think recognizing that there's something valuable to learn from individuals who have now navigated this world for a while 
and built those networks and helping our institutions and our administrations understand that peer support, particularly in this job, is not just nice to have, but it's necessary for the help and well-being of employees. I think that's our first mission, our most important one, because mutually we are awesome. We just need to make sure that everyone knows the price tag of that awesomeness. Thank you so much for your time today. And thank you so much for loving and caring for everyone the way you do. I'm really interested in seeing what comes next for you with this. You're really onto something. Thank you too, Cindy, for the opportunity to bring this message forward. Traumatic Compassion Dissonance. Take a few moments and go someplace quiet to reflect on your experiences with your animals and just sit with this for a while. You can share your thoughts on our website at getrealpodcast.info and also on our social media pages. I feel like a deeper discussion about our collective truth in this space might be good for us. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real. Thanks for joining us today. If you like what you're hearing, then I really do need you to step up and support us. Your small monthly donation will help a lot more than you think. Please visit the support link and give what you can. We still have a lot to talk about and I appreciate your engagement. Up next, why does it take so long for us to get new drugs to the patients who need them? We'll explore this together on the next episode of Get Real. We'll talk soon. Mm -hmm.